Hey everybody, this is Hank Shaw from Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. I am super stoked to welcome you guys to Season 2 of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. It has been a long time coming. I'm very grateful for everybody who listened to Season 1, those first 18 episodes. And as some of you may or may not know, I did end the podcast for a time because, well, frankly, it didn't help keep the lights on. So this season, I am very happy to announce that... Two great companies are sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast this season, Filson and Hunt to Eat. It's a great fit because I end up wearing both their company's gear all the time anyway, and it's some of the best stuff around that will help you on your upland hunts. I'm limiting it to just these two advertisers because I want them to serve as the two legs of the stool that will help the Hunt Gather Talk podcast stand upright. You are the third, and I will talk a little bit more about that later. But for now, let me tell you a little bit about how we're going to go here in Season 2. We are going to focus Season 2 all on upland birds. Upland birds and upland game. So we're going to deal with squirrels in this episode, and then every episode beyond that is going to deal with a very specific upland game animal. From pheasants to quail to cottontails to squirrels to rails, to woodcock, every different kind of grouse, every different kind of quail, and you name it, we're going to cover it in detail. So it's going to be an absolute upland game fest here on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. My goal here for season two is for you to enjoy a total geek out session on whatever that game animal is, even if you don't hunt it. Because after listening to an hour or even more than an hour of lore and biology and habitat and hunting tips and gear and of course prep and cook because i am a hunter gangling gardener cook you'll be stoked to go out there and chase these animals yourselves and bring some home for the table one thing we're doing different here on season two is i am asking you to consider giving a contribution to the hunt gather talk podcast that helps pay for editing and helps keep the lights on and helps make this podcast a healthy and vibrant part of your outdoor life. You can contribute to the podcast via the link here on Hunt Gather Talk, and there are all kinds of levels. There everything from a $6 donation, which will get you a bumper sticker and my eternal thanks, to $35, which will get you a copy of either Pheasant Quail Cottontail, which is the book upon which this podcast is based, or my venison cookbook Buck Buck Moose. And at the $75 level, you will get both of those books, and what's more, they will be signed by me, and I will send them to your doorstep. And finally, there's uh, an open-ended donation. So if you want to contribute a dollar, if you want to contribute $100 or whatever, that's okay too. And keep in mind, this is basically like public radio. I am asking you to please consider contributing, but I'm not going to require it. This is not going to be a paywall podcast. You will be able to listen to this on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play and however you want to listen to your podcast. All I'm asking is for you to think about it if you like it. And if you want to listen to a few episodes and then consider contributing, that is absolutely okay too. This first episode is going to feature a good friend of mine, a guy named Jonathan O'Dell. He is a wild game biologist for Arizona Game and Fish. He is a absolute squirrel geek. He may in fact be the first person to have ever hunted, shot, and eaten all eight squirrel species in North America. Now, we're talking tree squirrels here. We're not talking about flying squirrels or, or ground squirrels. 
because almost nobody actually hunts and eats those. Well, I was fortunate enough to have Jonathan as my guide to finish my own squirrel slam, which I did last year. And I got to tell you, it was an absolute blast. Many of the more esoteric squirrels to hunt in North America only live in Arizona or New Mexico or the desert Southwest, which is a thing that not everybody knows. So we're going to talk a bit about Western squirrels more than the East Coast old standbys of the fox and the gray squirrels. So without further ado, here's me and Jonathan chewing the fat about Mr. Bushytail. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, Jonathan. I am so glad to have you on in the initial episode of season two. As I mentioned before, the season two episode is all about upland game and not just upland birds. So we are possibly the two most squirrel huntness people that we know in terms of the length and breadth and the crazy stuff that we will do for squirrels. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, it's awesome to be on. Yeah, I would I would say for sure, we are probably the two biggest Western squirrel hunters, those from the West. There, there's probably a lot of guys in the Southeast who, who do it a lot more than we do. But um, That's true. I mean, I think in terms of, of variety of species as opposed to volume of squirrels, I, I've seen some guys on the Hunt Gather Cook Forum with, hey, up, me and my three friends all shot 10 squirrels today and we're going to shoot 10 more tomorrow and 10 more the next day. I'm like, woof, that's a lot of squirrels. Western hunters seem to be adventurous you know, we talked about collectors, you know, the, like, I, th- I think maybe we might be a little bit more in the collector category. You know, it's like Pokemon, you got to catch them all. Um, For sure. Kind of stuff, you know, and, and I, part of that probably has to do with just the diversity. I would imagine that, that we get to experience over what folks in the, in the East uh, part of the country get to experience. So it's true. So, so you're born and raised in in the west so first montana and then arizona for most of your life so how did you get bit by the squirrel bug i never actually think i've asked you that (laughs) so uh well i grew up in a subsistence hunting family um you know we we bought all the tags that that were available to us i grew up in montana and um you know we used to go to the local iga and and buy our tags mostly it's because we were trying to feed i mean the rule in our family was is is if a group of whatever animals you were hunting came in you know, you shoot the biggest one. Otherwise, if it was just one, you just shot the first one. Um, uh, cause we were looking to feed, there was 13 of us in total between my, my, my family, uh, my uncles and their families and my grandparents. So, but I just remember as a kid, we had red squirrels in Montana, um, at least in Western Montana where I was, um, I know the Douglas Eastern squirrels Park, or no, 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 uh, Hudsonicus, the, the red squirrels, uh, fairy diddles or, or whatever. So the same red squirrels that I would see in say Minnesota or Ohio or, or here in Arizona. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, high mountainous elevation there in the Rocky Mountains. And I just remember I was like, I was like, Dad, can I shoot it? And he's like, there's no way we're wasting ammo on something like that won't even feed the freaking cat. It's um, like three raviolis, by the way. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I was always kind of like curious. I was like, oh, OK, I guess, you know, we just don't as a, as a family, as a culture, we just don't hunt squirrels. So um, fast forward, I moved down to Arizona, did a stint in the Army, came back to Arizona and um, uh, the draw system here is really weird um, and, and kind of complicated for someone who's new to it. And for big um, game, so right? I, yeah, for big game. And, and so, you know, I was applying for deer hunt, just kind of typical stuff. And I had one other hunter in my wildlife classes with me and we would talk and he'd, he said, Oh, Hey, did you get drawn for anything this year? And I said, no, I'm, you know, I suck. Apparently I don't know. I don't understand the draw. And, and I guess I'm not going out this year. And he's like, he's like, why don't you go squirrel hunting? And I'm like, 
Scrollheim, seriously? Like, I don't, even, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't, I don't even know where to go. And he said, well, here. And so, we, you know, we pulled out the regulations booklet and he kind of pointed to a spot on the map. And, and I was like, well, what, you know, what do I shoot him with? Like, no, you know, you can just, you know, you bring a shotgun, a 22, whatever. And I said, okay. So I went up there um, that weekend and um, literally had the time of my life. It felt like hunting felt good again. Like when I was a kid, just the excitement and all that stuff. And there was so much action. I mean, like I, I, I'm sure I biffed it and blew it so many times that day, but I ended up getting a limit that first day of Abert's. And of course, Abert's are just the coolest looking squirrel you've ever seen. They don't look, you know, like the red squirrels whatsoever. They are the, and they are the squirrel with a uh, funky ears. Yeah, they're the, they're the strangest looking squirrels, but they're really cool. And so, I mean, I had such a great day and then I bring them back and I'm cooking them up and I'm eating them. I'm like, this is what, like I said, it just, it felt, it felt familiar again. Like when I first started hunting, I mean, there, there wasn't the concern over inches of antler and how big it was. Like there was nothing, you know, I was bragging because I've got a limit of squirrels and that was cool. Like it, there, there wasn't a greater trophy in terms of, you know, what anyone else could present to me than that. And so um, that kind of picked up my, my love affair with it. And, and of course, Arizona at the time uh, while I was in college, interestingly, there's a, there's a book about Arizona. It's called um, uh, the mammals of Arizona written by Hoffmeister. It's, it's like considered the Bible um, of Arizona. Now it's kind of outdated now and, and a bunch of stuff, but um, I think it was written in 1986, but in college we were all looking for it. And it's been out of print for a long time. And so the copies are very expensive. They sell for over a thousand dollars in Jeez. Europe um, because these Europeans want to come to Arizona to do uh, mammal work and research. Well, I ended up trading two shotguns for the copy that I got in it. You know, it, it, it talks about the squirrels um, here in Arizona. And I was fascinated the fact that there's four squirrels here. And so that just kind of led to, you know, my own curiosity about how many different kinds of squirrels there are and what, you know, where do they come from and all that. And so, but Arizona was just a fascinatingly unique place um, because of a couple of them. Well, actually really, you know, three of them really um, that, that were super fascinating and, and all that. And so it just kind of led me down a path for a long time of, um, uh, you know, just really getting into squirrel hunting and, and squirrel knowledge and, and kind of the behind the scenes of everything. So tell me about the different squirrels in Arizona. So um, Arizona is unique. It's the, I believe it's the only state with four species. We're talking about the tree squirrels, of course. Those, you know, the, the, the three classification of ground squirrel, tree squirrel, and flying squirrel. Arizona has like 20 squirrels in total, but four uh, tree squirrels, those that nest and, and pretty much live in trees. And so um, the red squirrel, the, the Tamiasiris hudsonicus, um, which is the most widely distributed squirrel in, in North America, um, we have the, the Abert squirrel, which is kind of the really unique one. It's only found here in the four corner states of, of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado, the big tassel ears. Uh, we have the Arizona gray squirrel, um, which is an interesting kind of squirrel because it does look like an eastern gray squirrel. Pretty darn close, including the markings, except the fact that it's actually a fox squirrel based on the dentition. It's, it's, it's either, I can't remember if it's lacking or, or adding one, uh, one of the mo additional molar um, is what you're looking at there. And then, of course, we have the, the Mexican fox squirrel or Nayarit fox squirrel or Chiricahua fox squirrel. Got several names, but uh, that one only resides in Arizona as far as the United States. And then it goes down to uh, the Sierra Madre. So Nayarit, huh? That's, a, uh, that's actually a state in Mexico next to Sinaloa. That's a long way down there. So it looks like Arizona is just the very, very tippy top of where that squirrel ranges. 
They, they are. Like I said, the Sierra Madres um, end before the United States. And so there's this one pocket of squirrels in the Chiricahua Mountains in the southeastern part of Arizona that uh, the squirrels exist in. Uh, at some point, probably habitat-wise, they were connected at one point. But um, since then, yeah, they, they've kind of been isolated out there on their own. I mean, it gives them a little, little unique color as compared to regular fox squirrels um, that I think you see throughout most of the Southeast, they have this, uh, they live in Madrian forest, which is, which is really a cool forest. If you ever get a chance to get into it, it's a, it's a mix of uh, Ponderosa, uh, Chihuahuan and Apache pines, and also mixed with Emory Oaks. Um, you just know when you walk into it, that there's something different about it. So they, the color they take on for their belly, other than the, the black and salt and pepper, the, the belly color and, and tail color and stuff is the dead, it's the color of the dead pine needles. I noticed. Um, yeah, exactly. Same <laughs> color. Gives them a little camouflage. Yeah, it's a really pretty squirrel. Squirrel. I mean, it's it's uh it's probably the reddest, other than a like a straight up you know Minnesota woods where red squirrel. Use a very very cool squirrel, and our chance to hunt them was unusual in that we did it in quite a bit of snow. Yeah, we we got snowed out on your your uh, your gray squirrel, but still. Uh, had the chance to, to try and get up in the mountains without four wheel drive and all kinds of stuff, so, <laughs> which is, yeah, snow in southeastern Arizona is very, very unusual. Doesn't yeah, happen all I, the time. I mean, like, when was the last time there was snow in Bisbee? I mean, it just seemed, it was, this was right about, God, this was right, it was right before Christmas, wasn't it? It was a December hunt. Yeah. I know that. It just seemed like the weirdest thing in the world that we were within walking distance of Mexico and we were in a full on whiteout. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense. I mean, the, and the flakes that were dropping were huge and heavy and wet, and it's something really unusual for southern Arizona. So, when's the last time you hunted squirrels in snow that weren't in the high mountains? Uh, I can't say that I ever have that weren't in the very high mountains. You know, we're talking either Colorado Plateau or up above nine thousand feet. I know it's uh, pretty crazy. So actually, I want to I want to use this as an opportunity to get into one of the first great squirrel debates: shotgun yeah. versus rifle. Oh yes. So, um, well, maybe I we will. Should... I will. I... I will start by saying I always shoot shotguns at squirrels when there's lots of foliage, and then when the foliage drops, I will switch to a 22 or occasionally a Hornet, but usually a 22. And Apparently, my very sensible decision is not looked at as uh, as sporting by certain members of the squirrel hunting uh, clans. <laughs> no, this is probably the biggest fight within the squirrel hunting community as to what to take them with. It's uh, and it and it goes back a long, long way. It actually goes back, um, I think, probably to um, the, the idea of barking squirrels, you know, with the Kentucky squirrel rifle. So for people who don't necessarily know exactly what barking squirrels is, what is it in theory supposed to be? So so in theory, what barking tree squirrels is, is that you don't uh, shoot the squirrel. You actually shoot the bark um, right next to or underneath the squirrel. So and, and of course, these were muzzle loading rifles, flintlocks and things. Um, and, and so it's a very bigger it's a much bigger ball than what you see even with 22s. But it would make the bark of these hardwood trees explode and kill the squirrel without damaging too much of the meat, which would, um, if you just hit them directly with a 36 cal or, or 45 caliber ball, um, would destroy a lot of meat uh, on that squirrel. And so this was a way to, to, you know, keep that from happening. So is it real or isn't it real? 
No, that um, so actually I can tell you. Um, so I collect 19th century sporting literature. Prior to the Civil War, American sporting literature is very, very sparse. It's very rare. There's just a handful, about three books, really, um, and maybe a little bit before. But starting at the Civil War and after, there was this explosion in, in uh, uh, cultural literature about hunting within the United States and, and the continent, really. And so there's a story, and it, it's actually the original author was John James Audubon, um, the famous birder. And it was about the first time he met Daniel Boone you know, the great pioneer of, of, of the Eastern United States. And Boone actually was a very talented uh, marksman. Um, we know that, you know, which is why he went to the Alamo. There was, there's stories about him, you know, killing anything and everything and showing off his, his abilities. Well, um, so Audubon met him and, and he was showing off his skill about barking tree squirrels. They were sitting at a good distance. He had a Kentucky squirrel rifle and would shoot just the bark instead of, actually the squirrel and it would kill him in most, I think instances, but um, that story became so popular and, and everything. I've found that story in no fewer than at least six or seven books from that, that pre-conservation era, late 1800s uh, era. So it was repeated often. And I think that's where that really kind of started. It was, it just, the myth became bigger than the man. And that's the way everybody shot squirrels back then. As it turns out, you know, most people who could afford uh, a well-manufactured Dutch or English or German Kentucky rifle um, were poor. I mean, they, they couldn't afford these things. These were That was the common gun you had to have in your home. And so they weren't very ornate. They didn't have silver and inlays and, and everything that you might imagine. But at the same time, the price of lead was incredible. And so it was always hard for me to understand, like, why would they waste lead on squirrels, even though we know that they ate tons of squirrels? And I, I started thinking about it and I was like, people must have been using some kind of shot or, or something else. And, and so what's funny is the, the myth of uh, or the legend of Daniel Boone is the very first thing Daniel Boone supposedly ever shot was a squirrel with a French trade gun using dried peas um, as rounds. Ah, so instead of a ball, you could you could basically put in a musket, more or less, whatever you feel like shooting, right? Absolutely. So he had a French trade gun at that time. He was eight. He was he was his parents were missionaries on a on a, a fort in uh, Pennsylvania at the time. Uh, but that's kind of the legend of of the first thing Daniel Boone ever killed. But you know, and mostly affluent people were the ones writing books during that time frame, and so it, it wasn't the commoner. You didn't get a sense of what the commoner was doing. But um, I did find one article which which kind of su supported my my theory because a guy talked about a black fox running across this field. They were actually waiting for some deer and there was a, a, a jet black fox that came out. And so he shot it with, in his words, squirrel shot. And to have a word like that kind of makes me think that, yeah, they were using shot like a shotgun or, you know, pellets instead of a single ball. It makes so, sense. Or dried peas. <laughs> yeah, dried peas, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we can we can definitely say the Kentucky Squirrel Rifle and the fact that it's named the Kentucky Squirrel Rifle um, was a major development um, in firearms technology and, and marksmanship, um, as well as squirrel hunting itself. Obviously, I mean, you're hunting something that's fast and little and in the trees and, and stuff like that. So I, I, I don't discount that at all. But I think the myth that common Americans were, were barking squirrels all across the country in the southeast is, is just total BS. So but that still leads to the, the very, very ancient tradition of 
only using a small caliber rifle for squirrels. And I mean, I'll admit, you know, I, when the leaves are off, I really, really, that's a great way to hunt them because, you know, it's harder and, and, you know, on the other side, you can make a longer shot, you know, much longer shot with a 22 than you can with a, with a shotgun. And if you're good, you headshot them. If you're not so good, you shoulder shoot them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, it's kind of how I learned how to do it. I mean, the first thing I ever shot when I started hunting, I, it was, a, was a gray squirrel in a Minnesota woodlot. I did it with a Browning 22. I'll, I'll never forget. Like it was a shot. It was a pretty good shot, maybe about 50 yards, maybe a little longer. And I shot this tree out, or this squirrel out of a tree. And it fell with a thud into the snow. I mean, it was about 10 degrees and yeah. snow everywhere. And are you talking about the Chiricahuas or Minnesota? <laughs> no, this is this. Is, yeah, I mean, it could have been the same thing. I mean, except it was a lot colder in Minnesota. And yeah, it was pretty. It's a pretty formative experience, even though I was an adult when I had it. And I think that getting used to rifle marksmanship in the squirrel woods is something that's. I don't know if it's still held these days, but it's. There's an old tradition with it. Yeah, no, and that's, um, I think that's really important. I mean, that's why, um, uh, Americans, even particularly our military, I mean, this, this, uh, there's a strong military history about our marksmanship and the fact that we are squirrel hunters. You know, that it's, it's a, it's a uniquely, it's almost a uniquely American characteristic to sport hunt, um, squirrels or, or hunting squirrels in the way that we do. Um, Russia's about the only other country, um, where you see a, a, a uh, an area that um, is so dedicated to squirrel hunting uh, or it, it Russia's case, a lot of times trapping. And what's fascinating to me is that we learned our squirrel hunting habits or, or, or thereof uh, from the native Americans. Um, I, I would, I would bet that there was squirrel on the original Thanksgiving table, you know, at the, at the original pilgrim set instead of a Turkey. Uh, every I don't know if American, it would be instead of a turkey. I think that was a groaning yeah. board by all accounts. Sure, but um, you know, even to this day, there are still tribes um, who uh, the the Inuits, um, as a matter of fact, in Alaska, the old the old people are the, the the senior folks in in the tribe actually prefer Alaskan ground squirrel to caribou um, as a taste wise. We learned squirrel hunting from the Native Americans, and and yes, probably some tribes only used it as you know, only boys hunt squirrels, you know, it's kind of a train up thing, but you know, for Americans, uh, it, it became very, very popular, um, as a great source of meat, you know, tasty for sure. Um, so they must've bow hunted them. I, I believe they did. Yeah. And original early, the original judo point. Yeah, probably. Cause you know, that, that's another one. If you think about, if you think a lead ball is expensive, I mean, these guys were chipping, chipping stone arrowheads and anybody out there who's ever napped an arrowhead knows that Lord knows you don't want to break that thing on a squirrel. So, I mean, I wonder how what they use, maybe just wood. Yeah. They, they may have been the original blunt tips just for the shock of it instead of having to, yeah, like waste a, a chipped out arrowhead or something. So. Yeah. I mean, think about that. I mean, it takes well over an hour to do a decent arrowhead and then clink up, oh, missed, broke the arrowhead. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Yeah, that's like kind of throwing away those those the super expensive broadheads today, like just firing them into a rock just to see, you know, and doing it oh, several times. Every every September I get, you know, somebody will come on the Hunt Gather Cook Forum and be like, Yep, got a couple of grouse. They cost me fifty bucks in arrows, but <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. shotgunning, I mean so shot I I'll admit I do a lot of squirrel hunting with shotguns 
if only because I live in a place where there's conifers everywhere. I, you know, I'm just not that good a shot when they're they're running in and out of pine trees. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I, I to me, I, I don't begrudge anyone whatever method, you know, they want to use. I mean, um, I, I think there are advantages to, to all of them. And, and so I wouldn't the, the toughest part to me is the hunting community, you know, tearing itself apart of, oh, you're not an archery hunter. Or, you know, my way is the best way or the only way. Um, it, I love shotgun hunting um, squirrels a lot of times uh, in the pines, too, because it requires me to be more stealthy and quiet as I'm sneaking in and I have to be at closer ranges. And other times, yeah, it's, it's, oh, I'm practicing my, my, my marksmanship skills and accuracy. So it's kind of a push pull out here in the West because, you know, you and I have been chasing Abert squirrels where, oh yeah, there's a squirrel. It's, it's so high. It's out of gun range. Yeah. You know, our trees here in the West are considerably taller than anything other than maybe tulip trees in the East. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen either a bantail pigeon or a squirrel and he's just way up there laughing at you. And, you know, that's when you wish you had your 22. That kind of goes to my my other love affair of the the old combination guns, you know, the the shotgun with the, the rimfire. To me, they were the absolute perfect gun, the old Savage 24s. Love those things. And it's and they've come back now with the Savage 42. I know uh, they're more synthetic and ergonomic and people like them, but I'm still a big fan of the old wood and, and blue metal and stuff like that. So. I should get one of those. I actually don't have one. You're right. I mean, because that's a thing where you can just stalk around in the woods and then, oh, there's a squirrel. And if you if you got to jump on him, you can use the rifle. And if he starts running, you could switch to the shotgun. And, and you know, it, that gun actually was built for the style of hunting that you and I enjoy probably the most, which is the mixed bag stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, because it, we don't want to shoot birds with rim fires, um, even though that was very acceptable, I think, even 50, 60 years ago. You, know, you can it's, still it's do it just, in some states. Yeah, for sure. But I, I think, you know, we've, we've often thought of bird hunting as, as more sporting using a shotgun and, and definitely, you know, probably a little more effective. But then, yeah, you might run across a standing rabbit or jackrabbit or uh, who knows, we're, you know, just having the ability to switch between the two. They were really, really cool guns um, for sure. And, and I know that, that game laws uh, across the country and particularly turkey laws are, are kind of what was the death knell for that, that gun in particular. Oh, I bet. Yeah, because then otherwise, you know, you got some guy out there just plinking turkeys with the 22 end of it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, did I ever tell you about my uh, my Purdy story? Huh. So for anybody out there who doesn't know, Purdy is an English company that makes arguably the finest shotguns in the world. I mean, they're in the everybody's top three or four shotgun makers in the world. And I don't own one because I'm not in that tax bracket. But my friend Joe Keo, who, if you remember from season one, he and I talked exotic protein because uh, he w- he's a trapper and he is hunted and eaten all kinds of things. Well, I was out at his place in Ohio and he lives up in Jogger County, which is northeastern Ohio. And, and I didn't have my gun with me because I was flying and I was doing a whole lot of other things. And, and he said, well, you know, I got a gun for you to borrow. So, well, what were we doing in northeast Ohio? Well, of course, we're squirrel hunting. And. In that part of the world, you can get the, their trifecta is is a regular gray squirrel, a fox squirrel, and what we'll call an Algonquin black. It's a uh, it's a black phase of the of a gray squirrel. So he's got buckets of them out in his area because he's got you know there's a sugar sugar bush plantation you know there's a 
I don't know how many acres it is of maples and mixed forests and beach and all that kind of stuff. So he hands me this gun. I'm like, oh, that's a really nice side-by-side. Well, what is it? Is this a purdy? <laughs> 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 so like, wait, what? <laughs> it's a, how the hell did you get a purdy? So he had a friend uh, who was a hunter all his life, and he was too old to hunt anymore. And he just gave Joe this purdy, and it had a cracked stock. So he got the stock fixed. You could barely tell that it was fixed. And and I tell you, man, the 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 hype is real. Like this gun was heavy, but if you held it at the chamber, which is where its its balance point was, it felt weightless. Yeah. And so the first the first and only animal I have ever shot with a purdy is a squirrel that was flat against a tree trying to get away from Joe. So, so the squirrel had seen Joe, and I kind of stuck up on on, uh, on the left-hand side like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, and uh, he never knew it hit him. And I, I managed to not waste any of the meat because uh, that purdy shoots pretty good. That's, it's very funny. It just shoots squirrels with a purdy. <laughs> um, so speaking of, of expensive firearms, um, it probably – we, we probably should mention the Jackson squirrel rifle. I'm not familiar with this one. So um, the Jackson squirrel rifle, um, which is made by Cooper Firearms out of Montana, um, is known as the Ferrari of squirrel rifles. It is it is a very, very ornate, beautiful um, 22. Uh, but the gun is actually named after a good friend of mine named Clifton Jackson. He is uh, the small game biologist for Arkansas. Uh, game and fish out there. And, um, so he actually ran into, um, uh, Bruce Cooper, who's the, the owner of Cooper firearms many, many years ago. And, uh, when Bruce was just kind of getting started out, um, with his company and, uh, ended up taking him squirrel hunting on the white river. Um, and so when Bruce got back to, uh, they had a whole lot of fun and they hadn't hunted squirrels since they were a kid. Well, Bruce, uh, got back to the shop and said, you know, we're going to make a gun for Clifton. So he did, and they sent it to Clifton and, and called him and said, hey, how do you like it? And Clifton's like, yeah, okay, it's nice. And he's like, what do you mean nice? Like, you know, like, what, what is there something wrong with it? And and uh, so Clifton said, well, you know, like, it's, it's not ideal for squirrel hunt. And he's like, well, what's what's a good squirrel gun? And so Clifton named off, you know, the, the beaver tail forend and, and Monte Carlo style stock and, and this, that, and the other thing. And so uh, Bruce wrote all this down um, and built that exact same gun to that specifications um, and sent it to Clifton uh, in replacement of, of the one he'd originally sent. Well, it's such a popular style that it's it's Bruce has just continued to make those guns. They're they're like A5 exhibition grade Clara Walnut. You know, I think they're well over two thousand dollars a piece without a scope attached yet. <laughs> um, and uh, they're they're beautiful guns. And I've shot uh, the original that Clifton has, but you can actually get the Jackson package on any rifle that Cooper makes. And, uh, but, uh, famously if it's a 22 or a 22 Magnum or, or any of that, that, that it's the Jackson score rifle. So that is hilarious. I, I'll have to put a link to this rifle in the, uh, in the show notes for this one. <laughs> yeah. They, <laughs> for the, it's for the discerning squirrel hunter. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So yeah, you, you've shot him with Purdy's. I've shot him with, uh, with the, the, <laughs> the fanciest 22 <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually hunted squirrels in Arkansas, and that actually brings up a uh, another interesting point that I want to talk about. So, my friend Jonathan Wilkins, another Jonathan squirrel hunter, uh, he's a he's a chef in Arkansas and a good friend of mine, and 
he went squirrel hunting when we were doing some goose hunting in Arkansas. And he came back with a bunch of squirrels, including, uh, I don't know, maybe four kits. So clearly, clearly not, not so much baby squirrels, but young of the year squirrels. And sure. this is the key. And I think this is the, or, <laughs> you know, you, you talk about origins of this and that and the other thing in any given pursuit. And, Chicken fried squirrel. Okay. So I'm going to say right now that chicken fried squirrel with any normal squirrel is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Squirrels can live up to seven or eight years in the wild, depending on the species and the place. And all these squirrels that are older or bigger or more mature, it's like chewing leather. I mean, the breading might taste good, but you need to par cook them first, except for kits. And so Jonathan fried up these kits and they were amazing. And it's the first time I think I had ever had fried squirrel that wasn't tough and horrible. And I had just completely given up on it because everybody in the South, you know, they swoon over chicken fried squirrel. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It's terrible. So what they fail to tell you is that unless they're par cooking at first, they're always cooking young of the year. And that's the, that's one of those things that like nobody tells you until you actually live through it. Yeah, for sure. I, that's and that's a, a true statement. I mean, I think every a lot of wild game species, and of course even the domestic ones, there's that one dish that is kind of almost the quintessential dish, um, or, or what they're maybe best known for, or things like that. And yeah, fried squirrel and gravy. That's yep. chicken fried squirrel and gravy. That's it. Chicken fried squirrels one. Well, see, so see, fried squirrel great squirrel gravy is a little bit different. So there's chicken fried squirrel, and then squirrel gravy is actually a kind of a cool deal. It's it's braised squirrel pulled off the bone and chopped and made into a brown gravy. That's really good. You put that on grits, and I'll eat that any day. Uh, oh, for sure. That's a super super famous one. And then you know your other two that you can't can't mention squirrels without is uh, squirrel and dumplings and right. Brunswick stew. Yeah, of course, Brunswick. Um, now are, are you a believer in, um, the origin of Brunswick being Virginia? You know, I mean, I don't think, I think it's lost to time. I mean, yeah. it's a very traditional, if for some reason you out there, you don't know what Brunswick stew is. It is a, uh, it's, it's basically it's a, what you got stew and every region has one and they have different names and few of them have different rules to them. Like, you know, no beans in Texas chili. But Brunswick stew is effectively a bunch of vegetables and a bunch of meats simmered in a stew until you feel like eating it. And some people will make this stew so that you can see and taste all the distinctive things. And some people just hammer it. It's very traditional to have squirrel and some sort of red meat and often pork will be the, your three, your three meats. But you will often, you'll see any three meats or four meats or sometimes six meats. It's like Kentucky Burgoo is very similar. And yeah. who knows if it's Georgia or Virginia? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a good, good, I mean, it makes me want to eat that stew right now. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I tend to be a believer in the Virginia side for one reason. Um, and it was Thomas Jefferson and his gardening. When, when you look at Thomas Jefferson and, and his gardening and his fascination with tomatoes and things like that, that's what kind of makes me believe that Brunswick may have been more Virginia. Um, to begin with, I think Georgia might have had a similar stew and maybe they kind of melded together or whatnot. But, yeah, that's kind of where I stand on the on the uh, issue of of uh, Brunswick. So, 
You know, you could also say, you know, in Virginia's favor is that Virginia was much was settled much earlier, much more extensively than Georgia. So Georgia, Georgia was a penal colony. After the after the English lost Botany Bay, they shipped everybody over to Georgia for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and and so that Georgia was not settled until the 1700s, really. Yeah. Um, there was a few settlements there, but Virginia, you've got Jamestown and, you know, the legislature. Virginia's had a legislature for 400 years. So. Georgia has not. So maybe Virginia, but I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah, not for sure. About, you know, we both of us have hunted every species of tree squirrel in North America. I am hard pressed to say, well, north of the Rio. Um, I am hard pressed to say that there's really any difference in, in, in how you go about hunting them. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, when I first did the slam and it was, it wasn't something I originally said like, Oh, oh I'm going to go get a slam of squirrels. It was, you know, I, I was looking at my travel schedule for the fall and realized I was going to be within the range of all eight squirrels. And I said to myself, I'm like, man, no, like, I wonder if I could get all eight. And so I tried and did. And, um, probably the only thing that I see as a big difference is just knowing more about the, the habits and habitats of the squirrels which makes you a better hunter because fox squirrels are lazy. You don't have to hunt them at dawn. Some gray squirrels that are really pressured, like in Missouri, oh my Lord, you need to be there well before sunup um, and sitting in position waiting, you know, before they come around. I mean, you can Minnesota's like that too. And so, um, yeah, there isn't a lot of difference in technique, um, but, you know, knowing the habits and, and habitats, I think, really help you out a lot because that's, that's really all I did was trust my instincts. I was like, you know, John, you're a pretty good squirrel hunter. You're out here in the middle of Missouri. You haven't seen a squirrel for half a day. You are where you're supposed to be. Just just wait it out, hang out, and sure enough, yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes together. So, I love your story about the Chiricaro red squirrel, which is like, if you get one, just go and eat tacos because you're hard to find more than one. Yeah, they well, Chiricaro fox squirrels have the lowest fecundity or the lowest um, birth rate um, of any squirrels in the United States. Really? Um, yeah, they have very, very low reproductive rates. And so those of us who hunt them are, are kind of like, I, I hunted nine days straight in the Chiricahua's just after fox squirrels. And I can tell you my best day ever was two. Well, didn't you have like um, one basically and, uh, commit suicide? Well, yeah. And that was the thing is I, I got kind of used to the fact that, you know, you kill a squirrel and then you could kind of just go home. You wouldn't mess around. And so I was, I shot my squirrel of the morning. Um, I was hanging out, taking pictures. I was at my truck and I was, I was skinning it out. And sure enough, this one just bounds up the tree right next to my truck. Uh, and I'm like, Oh my God, it's a second squirrel. I have to get you. So, um, yeah, he, 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 he presented himself to me in a, in a very auspicious way. Well, that's like, well, like when we did our hunt in the snow, we're driving up there and you're like, Oh my God, he's right there. Get him. <laughs> I couldn't oh, yeah. see him at first. He runs up that tree and like, it's, you know, we're in the middle, we're on this pathway covered in snow. And, and I think I actually have a video of it, um, of, of the aftermath because he is super steep side and you got it. You had him spotted. I didn't see him at first and then he moved. And then like, cause he'd look exactly like the, the dead pine cones. He, he was just tucked up. Yeah. And they look like the bark as well. I mean, if you, if you noticed that when it was, when it was clinging to the limb before you were able to shoot it and we couldn't spot it right away. Um, that's it. They literally match that, that reddish and black spotted bark of, of most of those three pine trees I mentioned. So, 
I ended up making a uh, uh, a red pipion with him. So I figured if he was a Mexican squirrel, I'd make a Mexican dish. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, I think one of the sort of, you know, if you're in the East, your general rule is you need to look in hardwoods. So mass trees, which, you know, hickories, pig nuts, acorns, you know, butternuts, anything that's got, you know, as, as everybody knows, squirrels like nuts. So the East is pretty pretty good pretty well known kind of terrain but once you get to the west the the mass trees out where we are are a little bit different i mean you get a lot more pine nut eating squirrels out in the west than you do in the east and i'm i'm pretty familiar with the so our local squirrel is the western gray he's a pretty cool squirrel he's very icy blue gray big and they they tend to like the transition between pine and and uh, conifer or pine and, and hardwood. I'm less familiar with the the habitats of the the Aberts and the other Arizona squirrels. Yeah, Aber, Aberts are super super easy. So the only thing you have to remember about Aberts is ponderosa pine. Aberts are an obligate of the ponderosa pine tree. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, so here in Arizona and New Mexico um, is. We this is the largest contiguous stand of ponderosa in the world. Um, it runs all across the top of the Colorado Plateau and and jets up into um, uh, southern Colorado and and into Utah, which is kind of where they're at. But yeah, the the pine the forest itself is actually kind of reliant on the Abert squirrel because of the clipping that it does on the fresh buds and it rips the cones apart and doesn't get a chance to eat all the seeds so seeds kind of get thrown everywhere and so they're they're completely linked to ponderosa pine um, without question that's a good tip now uh, arizona grays are very unique in that really what the the key the key element of the habitat is arizona walnut but not oh wow so it's but it's not you don't need a lot of them what you're looking for is, is generally you're going to look in riparian kind of corridors and, and some of our canyons and drainages that are wet all the time. So they're it's covered. Pretty much oaks. where all the walnuts live, like because your Arizona walnut uh, is that. So there's Arizona walnut, there's a California walnut and there's a northern California walnut. And of the three wild western walnuts, the Arizona one has by far the smallest nuts. Like it's for people, it's kind of not worth picking those those walnuts, but. They, you're right. Yeah. We're on uh, next to rivers. Well, and, and so the reason why you're looking for the Arizona walnut isn't because the squirrels love them. Mm. Um, what it is, is the flower, the catkin that comes off uh, in the spring that uh, uh, before the walnut begins to form, it's, you know, it's the flower. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the Arizona gray squirrel eats to turn on its reproductive system to begin to, to mate and have um, babies. So it's gray squirrel Viagra. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spanish fly for Arizona gray squirrels. Um, but uh, um, so, yeah, like I said, you don't need as long as there's a big Arizona walnut tree that's, you know, definitely producing nuts and, and these flowers. I mean, you're if you find at least one of those trees, you're, you're going to have Arizona gray squirrels in the neighborhood. Um, now, do those trees live all over Arizona or just in the sort of the below Flagstaff area? Below Flagstaff, um, basically you're looking at, at a lot of the, the front face of the Mogollon Rim, which is below the Colorado Plateau, and then uh, a couple of isolated mountain ranges um, to the kind of to our west, and then 
only certain ranges um, within the skylands of southern Arizona. Apparently, one I, what I believe happened was the, the glaciers deposited those squirrels and kind of those habitats that when the Wisconsinian ice sheet was retreating, um, probably a lot of them were more connected just based on our climate at the time. And then eventually that you know, those, those things got cut away. Um, cause there's a lot of species that, that you see that distribution break up across Southern Arizona because of the, the island, the sky island complex. Fascinating. Um, several species are that way, which is really unusual. So yeah, there's, there's famously our, our endangered squirrel, the Mount Graham red squirrel. There are no gray squirrels on the Penalenos, that entire mountain range. There's only the red squirrel that was native. Aberts were put in by the department, I think, back in the 40s to kind of expand hunting opportunity, which was a bad decision, but in retrospect. But yeah, there's no gray squirrels on that entire mountain range, and it's real close to a lot of other gray squirrel habitats. So, you know, hmm. the very next mountain range is perfectly fine. It has gray squirrels, but. Um, what about New Mexico? New Mexico does have a lot too, and, and it's broken up across their, their terrain as well. Um, you know, it extends out. Really, only Arizona and New Mexico have the squirrel, have the Arizona gray squirrel. So. And yeah, it's the, the Arizona walnut and those riparian canyons and corridors. So, have you ever seen those trippy Delaware fox squirrels? The ones that are, look like kind of like a skunk and a squirrel had a love child. Oh um, yeah, so that's kind of the most interesting part. You know, we we haven't talked about diversity. That's true. Um, like they always wear different clothes. It, yeah. So um, the eastern fox squirrel of all the squirrels has the greatest diversity. Um, in terms of all the color varieties that, that are around or, you know, sometimes sometimes designated as subspecies um, based on, on those differences. But, yeah, eastern fox squirrels have the greatest variety. Like, there's – God, I can't even remember how many of them there really are. I mean, you talked about, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a complete black one called the Delta uh, oh, fox there's squirrel. Oh, there's a black fox squirrel? Okay. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Full black in the, in the Mississippi Delta. Um, there's the uh, the Sherman's fox squirrel, which, yeah, looks like a squirrel that's dunked its head in a paint of, uh, bucket of black paint. Um, <laughs> Is that know, the one that lives in South Carolina? Because I, I – so I was down duck hunting in South Carolina with the South Carolina Waterfowl Association, and I was in their lodge, and and I, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And it was it was a gigantic squirrel. It had to be like a four pound squirrel mounted, like climbing down the wall. And it was a, basically a black and white giant fox squirrel. I'd never seen that color phase before. Yeah. The, the, so the, um, the, the true Shermans or what they call Shermans um, are uh, in northern Florida, southern Georgia. And then there's some variations of that as it moves north. As you kind of see that mix of, of silver and black and white and red and you know, they they get really kind of oddball, you know, varieties as it comes out and then leading all the way up to the Delmarva, the, the endangered Delmarva fox squirrel. Or now I think it's threatened or they've, they've removed it from the list recently, but still aren't allowing hunting of it. But gotcha. that one is is a beautiful it's almost um, I mean, it's almost silver in color. It's not gray. I mean, it is silver. It's beautiful. Hmm. Uh, lives out in the Piedmont. Um, there on the, on the Delaware, that's its name, Delmarva, which is Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, that peninsula that encompasses all three States. Oh yeah. I used to live in Richmond. I know it well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that's really kind of neat. Um, most of the other ones, um, uh, I famously, um, have shot, uh, not the albino, the gray, gray squirrel, um, but the amelanistic or, or leukism sometimes is what it's mm -hmm. called. So they don't have the pink eyes. They don't have the, the the pink skin underneath it's it's truly a white 
um, sometimes even a little, you know, blonde, but, um, yeah, famously that was, um, one of the ones, cause there's very few locations for absolutely, uh, white squirrels that aren't albinos. I wonder uh, if what I saw, so I was hunting in Minnesota near Stillwater, Minnesota a couple of years ago, and I was driving to the place I was going to hunt and I almost ran off the road because a white squirrel ran across the road. <laughs> like, no, get oh, it went into somebody's yard safe. <laughs> yeah yeah you can actually go see um uh white squirrels in uh marionville missouri and uh only illinois in town um and, and both towns are very protective of those squirrels and, you know don't allow any hunting and, and stuff like that but um occasionally some get road killed and things like that and so that's usually where you end up seeing mounts for them but yeah if you see a regular white squirrel more often than not it's going to be an albino oh, um, okay. outside of that but then you know there's no squirrel <laughs> the, yeah. Um, melanism, the, the black phase, um, you know, where the color gene just completely turns on and goes yeah. black. Actually, what's fascinating to me and, and um, my assumptions on this are, are, are just kind of based on my own uh, reading and understanding. But, the you know, the very first biological entry in the Lewis and Clark journals uh, on the journey of discovery were about black gray squirrels uh, swimming across the Mississippi. And um, which is uh, weird because there's black gray squirrels in D.C., well, and, and, and Ohio. So, so it's my contention, um, actually, that the, the gray squirrel, the eastern gray squirrel, actually was predominantly black throughout most of the population pre-Western settlement mm. um, prior to us getting here. Because the, the eastern hardwoods actually were kind of a very closed canopy, dark forest. Yeah, you're right. It was. And, and yeah. And so I think as we as we kind of expanded and opened up and started chopping down the forest, that that color was more selected for predation because they were easy to spot and the gray ones simply were able to hide out better. And and so because all the early squirrel information about the United States talks heavily about how many black squirrels were everywhere. Hmm. As so, opposed to the uh, the English squirrel. It's the uh, it's a classic, classic uh, metaphor. So if you don't know, I mean, Jonathan, you know, of course, but out there you might not know that there, there's some chucklehead decided to bring American gray squirrels to Great Britain where the bigger, more aggressive, arrogant American squirrel is completely dominating the squirrel mumpkin or squirrel nutkin, little English reddish squirrel. And, and like the whole country's got their, I was going to say they got their tits in the ringer, but uh, <laughs> so I just did. And like now in England, you can get squirrel on menus and Fergus Henderson's put it on his menu. And it's it's because they're trying to eat the invasives. And it's funny that their invasive is our native native squirrel. Yeah, well, and, and gray squirrels are, are incredibly of all the squirrel species. The eastern gray squirrel is just it's so versatile. It's such a generalist that, I mean, it can survive just about anywhere on anything and really outcompete. I mean, it just out hustles everything else. They are. I mean, They're out here in California too. You've got them in California. Um, I mean, there's always concerns because of planes just traveling internationally um, with particularly out of, out of the Southeast or the Eastern United States that a squirrel hops on a, on a, on a flight because of some baggage truck or something going underneath the tree. And uh, um, taking them all over the world because, yeah, they are one of the things that, that eastern gray squirrels are problematic with is is squirrel pox yeah. um, with their disease. And that um, really impacted the British squirrels very, very bad, too, because the the gray squirrels can be positive for it and never have any you know symptoms or ill effects. And it's you know, it's transmissible, I think, throughout all the squirrel um, 
species, uh, as far as we know. So, hmm, who knew? Yeah. Well, let's switch gear for, for a second and talk about squirrel calls. So, squirrel uh, calls yes. seems to be like a thing, right? I've never ever used one, and I don't know if I'm missing out. Yeah, I've uh, um, so I worked with a custom call maker, um, Ozark Custom Calls, uh, Richard Meager, who's uh, out in Missouri. Um, simply because I was frustrated with the calls that were on the market because they weren't, there was something about them that wasn't right sounding after, after being in the woods so long and listening to them, I was like, I just can't get the right sound out of it. And I wanted something that was versatile enough to be able to do not only the, the bark, but the, the snort and the chatter and squirrels are very versatile in their, in their, their calling and talking behavior. And so finally, um, met a guy and he's like, if you want to do it, I'm willing to, to work with you on it. And so um, we finally did make one, which is which is really awesome. I, I love it. It's wood. And, but we had to like bend the crud out of like the tone boards. And because every time I blow it, I'm like, no, nah, this sounds like a monkey. No, nah, this sounds like something else. And, um, <laughs> and it, it, eventually I, it finally got to the right sound. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. And um, so I was super stoked about it. And, and it, it works well. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, that it's a it's a hundred percent sure thing, but I can get some squirrels really irritated really quick. Um, <laughs> so you know, uh, call who makes the squirrel? Who makes this call? Um, he he only made the one for me. The, as far as the custom, he has all. He the made you for it. one. It's like uh, the it's the one true squirrel squirrel one. call. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> he has the measurements on. But yeah, his name's Richard Meager with Ozark Custom Calls um, out of Missouri. So. <laughs> He's going to get some phone calls. <laughs> I hope so. Um, uh, it's, it's a really, it's, it's just a beautiful little thing. And you got to work with it a little bit. And, it, you know, part of, part of a call, even whether it's duck calling or, or squirrel calling, or, I mean, some, some of that really is, is about, you know, talking to the animals. But then sometimes it's just more confidence for you in, in doing what you're doing. So let's, let's talk about actually putting squirrels in the bag. My advice to everybody is always, Slow down and use your ears more than anything else because squirrels tend to not be super quiet. And I've tended to be able to hunt better and bring home more squirrels by moving slower and by watching and by listening and then moving judiciously than by trying to cover more ground. And has that been your experience, too? Absolutely. I I, I really rely on my ears and my eyes and standing still um, for periods silently moving through the woods and, and stuff. But, um, you know, you'll catch a, a little twitch or something. But the other thing is, is, is um, yeah, you, you definitely hear there's a there's a lot of nonverbal communication that squirrels do um, actually like tapping their nails on bark, um, which I've seen a lot. And they won't bark, you know, at you. They'll they'll just tap their nails, you know, in close proximity to you or something. They're just trying to, you know, figure out what you are. But um the other thing that you have to kind of watch is, is you know, if, if they're moving around in the trees, you know, looking at limbs and how they move in the wind and and finding something that just doesn't seem off, uh, you know, it's not bouncing the right way or it's like, OK, maybe that's a squirrel, you know, and, and you start picking up those little key things. The more time you spend with squirrels um, that, that I think really help you put more squirrels in the bag and find them and, and put them down. So it's always been my experience that if it's super windy don't even bother but other than that I, I generally find squirrels out every day yeah super windy or um heavy snow days like if there's a cold big cold front moving through a lot of times usually that wind comes with that and um uh so they won't you know they they'll hang out in their drays all day long or whatnot but 
if you're out there the day before, sometimes like it's bananas. Um, you know, you can go into an area where you're like, oh, there might be three or four squirrels around here. And it happened to me um, a few years ago um, out in Flagstaff. I was like, yeah, there's probably, you know, maybe maybe half a dozen squirrels in this this little kind of area. And the very next day, a storm was coming. So I said, I'll go out and squirrel hunt again this morning. I got out there. I, literally, there was 24 squirrels on the ground looking at me, um, <laughs> trying to gather, you know, whatever warmth of food they could find from running around. I was like, oh, my God, look at how many squirrels are. I'm like, I couldn't I would have never guessed there were that many in that little area. What's the um, bag limit? Uh, Arizona is just five squirrels per day. And so um, Colorado has the for Aberts, I believe it's only two. Okay. Um, that's the lowest limit, I think, of squirrels in the country that I've ever found. Um, yeah, ours is four. Yeah, and a lot of the eastern states, you'll you'll get eight or ten. I find that, at least in Minnesota and in other cold places, if it's really ripping cold, like I hunted squirrels once where it was zero without the wind. I at that time I I was smart enough to not go before dawn, and I noticed that they didn't even start moving until after nine a.m. Like they waited until the sun got up a bit before they they left and started walking around. Yeah. You know, we talk about squirrel hunting in the snow in Arizona. I'm probably one of the few people in Arizona who owns a pair of snowshoes because uh, I do love snow hunting squirrels up in the high country in, in Arizona, especially after a fresh, fresh powder snow. That to me is one of the funnest just to be able to, to follow tracks and, and see where squirrels are running because they always it's it's very interesting to see how they move through the woods even though they're not being followed, it looks like they're like trying to give you the slip and give you some like James Bond 007 stuff. They'll, they'll climb up one tree and go jump over three trees and then come down. And, um, you know, so you can't find stuff, but yeah, cold days. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, as you, as you get better about what areas you're in and stuff, you kind of learn to figure out when squirrels are out, when versus they're not. So I've never squirrel hunted in pounding rain, but that's just probably more me than them, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, squirrels don't like the wind and because they're obviously listening for predators themselves. So, With the exception of the two red squirrels, the Douglas and the actual red, red yeah. I've not noticed a huge flavor difference in the, in the animals once you get them home and in the, and in the pot. Right. I, I think there are some nuances, like I think you've talked about before, you know, the, the, the gray squirrels and the, the fox squirrels tend to be pretty nutty just as far as a palate profile. Aberts do take on the, the ponderosa pine, the light um, kind of terpenes um, that you get from there just in their fat and things like that. But yeah, red squirrels and Douglas squirrels have definitely a strong pronounced taste because of the conifer trees they're in, you know? Yeah. They're the ones that they're super piney and they're, they're piney almost like a spruce grouse can get piney in the sense that, you know, it's not bad. It's not, it's just it, people will say it's bitter. It's not really quite that. It's just a it's like a twang. No, I, and, and I think some people, you know, as you and I've talked about, some people don't their tongues don't even know what flavor is uh, or reminded of them because they've been stuck on the, the generic domestic American diet for so long with meat that's really bland. And so, yeah, the, I, I actually tend to enjoy the piney flavor. I mean, uh, I had one guy, he told me, uh, he said, uh, a red squirrel basically tastes like your best cut of chicken marinated in pine salt. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, briefly marinated in pine salt. <laughs> yeah, briefly marinated in pine salt. But, um, 
I don't see a problem with it. Uh, most times I actually think it works uh, in the favor. Like if you're doing, um, you know, strong spices, um, along with that, that piney flavor to, to really enhance everything instead of letting it just be the dominant, like I would never, I don't know that I would go super bold on most any other squirrels, um, in terms of seasoning or, or flavoring. They tend to be a mild, gentle, gentle meat to begin with. So squirrel might be my favorite mammal meat. Like it's, Better than venison, better than rabbit, because it's more interesting. It reminds me of the oyster, that that little round piece of meat at the base of a the thigh of, of a turkey or chicken. Yeah. Where it's a dark meat, but not too dark. It's dense. It's I've never really found a squirrel that was so tough that it took me more than two, two and a half hours to, to braise it. So it's relatively tender. You get a nice, good... Fox squirrel or Western gray or, or Arizona gray. And you know, it's, it's even more than one squirrel a person. You know, so it's, they're big, they're big animals. I mean, I've, I've done one squirrel for two people on these bigger ones and, you know, regular Eastern gray is one per. I don't know. I just something about it. There's something interesting about it. It could just be because that was the first thing that I ever hunted. There's kind of emotions talking there, but. Hundreds of years later now, since the start of this country, I mean, we still wouldn't have, you know, these these discussions about squirrels if they weren't, you know, delicious and and those kind of things. I mean, you know, fun fact, kids like, you know, squirrel actually is the fattest game meat. It's the highest in cholesterol uh, when you look at, at the statistics on it. But uh, as well, it's it's here's the other trivia point for the day is that squirrel is the only mammal game mammal with a collarbone yep i um, think i told you that didn't i no no i knew about that <laughs> it's but, super uh, weird it's like when you're butchering squirrels it's like hey wait <laughs> yeah and so it, squirrel can be very forgiving in a in a skillet um simply because of that extra fat and keeping the meat juicy and moist unlike a lot of other game that is leaner and, and dries out quicker so i think cooking wise though they are they do tend to be a little bit limited because you're dealing with a small animal with a fair number of bones. And like we've mentioned before, unless you get a young of the year, you can't really just chicken fry them. So you're always kind of dealing with a process to tender, tenderize the meat. And that usually means braising or putting it in stews. You know, grilled squirrel would be a weird thing. I mean, could you? I suppose. I mean, but you probably have to braise it first and then grill it or grill it and then braise it. Uh, I mean, I think if you if you look back in American history, you see fricassee is is kind of your main deal where, and that's a two step. So that's fried and then and then simmered. Yeah, I, I, it's unlike rabbit, like where you know sixty percent of your meat's basically in the hindquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little more, not exactly, but a little more better distribution of the meat throughout the squirrel. I mean, they're just you skin a squirrel and you just you know they look like little muscle men. They do, <laughs> um, you know, ripping up and down the trees all the time just with all their, their muscular structure. But yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. You know, how do you, it's how to deal with all those little bones and, and, you know, processing everything and, and all that. I mean, thankfully, you know, most guys who do it aren't, aren't like, you know, some other species where, you know, like birds where they just breast it out and, and leave all that extra meat on there. At least, you know, they're, they're taking pretty much all of it because they want it and, and are you going to use it? So. Fun thing, I uh, fun fact. I was just thinking while you're talking about that, I'm thinking of you know I I will almost always save the the liver and the heart and put that into a stew or whatever. And 
I, I mean, my mind immediately jumped to what I hear a lot for some reason that don't squirrels always have rabies? And <laughs> it's it's my understanding that squirrels can't actually get rabies. That actually is is one of the weird. So um, being here in Arizona and close to the Golden Triangle for prairie dogs, which are part of the squirrel family, mm, interestingly. Antivirus. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's that's or bubonic plague. Stuff. Well, but that and that occurred here in Arizona a number of years ago. Um, somehow, magically, mysteriously, we we had a couple of Abert's tree squirrels test positive for plague, um, who were very close to a um, a colony uh, of prairie dogs. And so the phone call comes to me, and they're like, "How far do you think bubonic plague will will spread through the squirrel population?" And I'm like, just imagining this wildfire going across the ponderosas. I'm like, going, I'm like, well, you know, I started thinking about them and and how social they are and how close into contact they come, you know, with each other. And I said, you know, it's probably going to stay localized. I don't think it will spread that far. Um, you know, maybe with squirrels that they share their dray with or whatever, but it'll, it'll fall apart. And eventually it did. I mean, we didn't get a whole lot more after those, those first two cases. Yeah, I think, think, well, and, and squirrels have, um, really interesting things about them. If any other squirrel ate like an Abert's did, it would kill them. You know, if if, a, if we transplanted a fox squirrel or a gray squirrel, if, if they ate the the meristematic tissue of of the ponderosa pine and all that stuff, they would it would straight you mean, uh, kill. That's that's the underbark, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it would it would kill a fox squirrel or a gray squirrel to do that. Um, there's something I can't can't remember what it is that causes eastern fox squirrels' bones to turn pink from something that they eat, but it doesn't do it in gray squirrels, and they can eat the same thing. Weird. Um, yeah, the you know as I've often said, it's it, to me, it's really cool that, that you know, uh, the order of rodentia, all the rodents, make up 60% of all mammals on the planet. So they're the largest group um, as a whole, but they're the very, they're probably the least studied overall. And the Sciuridae uh, family, all the squirrels, are, are a big chunk of rodentia too. And so um, I love the fact that there are squirrels, the only place there are no squirrels on the, the entire planet Earth is Antarctica and Madagascar. Weird, because the lemurs, I guess, kicked them out in Madagascar. Yeah, I have no idea why that is, but we have Alaskan or, or Arctic ground squirrels that do this like torpor thing or hibernation. Like, oh, bears. I've heard about that. Yeah, um, and it's it's you know it's being studied now, but squirrels. If when you think about you know from an environmental standpoint, if you think about forests or trees in terms of a natural history life cycle, there's only two things you can possibly think about with any forest or any, any tree. And it's a bird or it's a squirrel because they needed them in order to, to help fulfill their life cycles. You know, the Eastern hardwoods are, are all about gray squirrels burying nuts and forgetting about it. The Abert's is like the, the gardener of ponderosas, um, you know, pruning all the time and, and shaping trees and, and, you know, particularly in a high fire regime that they, evolved out of but you know so i often think about like california redwoods and and uh, uh the sequoias and i go dear god i i thank the lord in heaven that it wasn't a squirrel um who, who did these trees because we'd need a 30-06 to shoot them out of the tree <laughs> um right. first of all i'd be a 300 yard shot to the top of the tree and then you'd have to get out of the way and make sure it didn't crush you when it fell to the ground <laughs> so you were talking about the eastern gray squirrels and and uh and bearing acorns. And one of the coolest things that uh, I read about this years ago is that the, is that the squirrels are smart enough 
to know that when they come across a red acorn, to bury it because it's full of tannin and it's bitter and tannin is water soluble. So when that acorn gets rained on and snowed on, it leaches out some of the tannins. Well, if they're hungry today, they'll go and grab a white oak acorn because they're much lower in tannins and they'll eat those constantly while they're burying red oak acorns all fall. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, trying to put away a stock of food for the the winter, so. But it's you know the the, the their ability to discern the two acorns was you think about it, yes, it's the Basically, a rat with good public relations and a bushy tail, you know. You know, but then I guess, as you know, rats are aren't, rats are pretty smart. So, are they I the only thing that are they the, the only rodent that we normally hunt? Because rabbits aren't rodents. Right, they're lagomorphs. Yeah. Um, as far as rodents, well, I would say in in terms of a, a traditional way, the way you know American right. hunting has kind of evolved. Yeah, absolutely, squirrels are the only rodent that we hunt. Um, yeah, because people will uh, pop like. Rock chucks and marmots and nutria and and uh, and beavers and those are all rodents. But well, and and interestingly, you just said that because um, you know marmots are part of the squirrel family. Oh, um, okay. Prairie dogs are part of the squirrel family. They're all part of Sciuridae. The defining feature of Sciuridae is that all of them can climb trees, regardless of their their status um, as a ground dweller or a tree dweller or whatever, and they all can turn their their ankles 180 degrees, you know, you mean, a, you mean a woodchuck in Pennsylvania can do that. Uh, if it's, if it's, yeah, if it's part of the Sayuridae family, it sure can. I mean, marmots can do the same thing. That'd be uh, trippy to see a woodchuck up a, up a tree. What's crazier is seeing a, a prairie dog up a tree, you know, just especially in the West here, how we think about them. But, um, yeah, they all, all the Sayuridae family can climb trees, uh, even whether they choose to or not. You know, I think a lot of them, a lot of them probably were a bar, uh, arboreal for a long time, and then some transitioned to the ground uh, and just took on different lives because either that tree doesn't, the tree that they might have been associated with is gone now, or you know any evolutionary pressures that that kind of were weighing on them at the time. And 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 you can always tell whether you know just immediately looking at a squirrel if it's a tree squirrel or not simply by you know it it has a broad, flat, uh, flatter style, wide tail that which they use for balance. Hmm. Uh, the big tree squirrels, the six we talked about, is excluding Douglas and, and uh, red squirrels, that Cyrus, their their genus name means shade tail. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Because they sit in the shade of their tail, yeah. Um, and so uh, red squirrels and Douglas squirrels actually are called Tamaya Cyrus. Now, Tamias, the Tamias genus actually is chipmunk. Um, that's the chipmunk one, and, and Cyrus is the shade tails. And so when you see Doug's, Douglas and red squirrels, they do um, look like they, half and half. Yeah, it's it's because they have cheek pouches, hmm. um, cheek pouches with shade tails. So interesting. Yeah. So let's let's finish up with talking talking some recipes and cooking and that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, I know how I like to cook squirrels, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But you have uh, you have competed in the World Squirrel Cooking Championship in uh, in Bentonville, Arkansas, and. Uh, and Where else would you hold such a fine event? I know, I know. Walmart. I was a judge at that one year. It was pretty cool, actually. I, would, I will probably go back there at some point. How do you like to cook? I mean, I know when you do like a competition, you, you know, everybody's trying to be super fancy, but like, how does Jonathan O'Dell cook up a mess of squirrels on uh, on like a, a Sunday afternoon at home? Yeah, so I I tend to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll high grade the squirrels too, you know, find out how many young of the year I got versus how many adults. Hey, and, let's stop for a second. Other than size, is there a way to tell? Not really. Um, and sometimes even that can be deceptive. 
because you'll have young of the year that maybe have been born earlier or whatnot. And, um, a lot of times I, I kind of think that, that I can tell by, you know, looking at, at the quality of their teeth or, you know, their claws and things like that. Um, whether it's new or whether it's, you know, it's, it's got some age to it because they're both of those, the claws and the teeth continually grow throughout their life cycle. So particularly their teeth, like go all the way to their skull, like halfway around, like, you know, through their nasal cavities and everything. So they'll, they never run out of tooth. There's never any, you know, like gummy style, you know, grandpa squirrel with no teeth out there. <laughs> um, all right. So you're high grading them. So yeah, I, I, I kind of do that, but, um, as you said, you know, there's an inherent toughness in some squirrels and there's a couple ways to deal with that. One of them is, is, is parboiling. Uh, another is grinding, um, the meat and stuff like that. But I, I, I tend to like the parboil. I, I kind of like squirrels because, and right now we're ending, we're, we're, we're nearing the end of chili season here in, in New Mexico and Arizona and, and all that. And so hatch chilies are abundant everywhere. Um, that I go and squirrel season's just kicking off. And so it's, it's really nice, you know, to, to combine some of those, those squirrels with, with a green chili and, and parboil them. I kind of making stews or whatnot. Uh, cause yeah, it's it like a, like a Southwestern squirrel gravy is like a green chili squirrel on, uh, I don't know. What would you put it on? I, I'm a big fan like you of Sonora. Um, and one of the hallmarks of Sonoran cuisine is the lack of corn with, just a couple of exceptions. One of the exceptions is, is the Sonoran enchilada, which is a stacked enchilada and not a rolled enchilada. Uh, New Mexico does that too. Exactly. And, uh, it's, it seems to be the only time you see corn in Sonoran cuisine. And so I love making those masa cakes. Uh, Oh, that's right. Cause aren't they, they're like, it's like a thick tortilla, isn't it? It is. Oh, it's very thick. Yeah. It's not like the standard Arizona flour tortilla or Sonoran flour tortilla. It's, it's a thicker masa that's fried. Yeah, that and some some green chili squirrel gravy just poured over the top. That's you know a little bit of cheese here in heaven. That's a good dish. So the, so uh, the Sonoran uh, masa cake, I forget what they call it, but it's basically if you're in New England listening to this, it's a Johnny cake. It's a disc of well in their case masa, so it's nixtamalized, but it's a disc of cornmeal cooked into a cake and fried in lard on both sides, so it holds together and holds its shape, and then you put good things on top of it. I Americanize it. I'm sure I, I add in like whole whole kernel sweet corn into that into that mix and stuff just to kind of give it a little more rustic, a little more body. And um, but yeah, it's it, it's actually one of the first dishes I competed at with the World Championship Squirrel Cook Off and took third place the first year with it. So since it's mine, I I, I get a I get the chance to name it. And we called it our DS de our DS Verde de Sonora. Uh, <laughs> idea um, meaning uh, squirrel in Spanish. Squirrel in Spanish, yeah. So <laughs> it was a good time. I uh, I really and I really enjoyed working on that dish, creating it the first time because I wasn't sure. And and I think I'm still the only contestant in the history of the World Championship Squirrel Cookoff to make uh, or to make use of Aberts there. So everyone else usually uses you know gray squirrels, fox squirrels. And I think I was still the furthest Western team so far too. So. Um, I don't know if a team from California has made it out or not. So I don't know. I, I, there was nobody from the West when I when I was there. The Okies won it when I was there. Yeah, yeah, and they're very good. They compete every year, uh, do a fantastic job. So for the record, their team is named the Okies. I'm not just being derogatory to Oklahoma people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the Okie <laughs> Squirrel Busters or something. Well, like it was like the Okie Squirrel Assassins or something awesome like yeah, that. Could be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like. Um, I I actually the the first. 
squirrel dish that I kind of either became known for or, or ended up doing over and over again. And I put it in my first book was the squirrel Aurora. It's a, a Spanish dish like from Spain and it involves normally rabbit and, but it's a, it's an olive and caper and almond or, uh, or walnut sauce. And it just seemed, I wanted to pair a squirrel with, with some sort of a nut sauce or nut thing like that. And it, I tinkered with the dish quite a bit before I got it right. And it's still to this day, got to make it at least once a year. It's a great, great dish. And, um, I'll put that dish in the show notes. And Jonathan, if you want to give me, uh, the recipe for, uh, for your green chili squirrel, I may or may not put it up on the, uh, on the site and uh, give you full credit. Yeah, no, that's, it's really awesome. Like I said, it's, it's a homemade green chili and it's, we've talked about this before. I, I, I make the sauce, uh, homemade for it. And it, it uses that technique, um, which my brain is fogging out on, using fat and flour to start a roux. Uh, a roux, yeah. Because um, you and I have talked about that with with green chili um, uh, stews and and things like that, and and how you thought that was kind of bizarre, you know, kind of a bizarre way to start with a roux and 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 then adding the green chili to it. But it, it, it can tell you it's absolutely fantastic and works so. no and since we had that original conversation years ago like that's a thing so so that's why whenever you see green chili something it's usually from sonora or new mexico or arizona and it has a roux if you if it's chile verde it's usually mexican mexican and no roux so that's right. that's kind of a, a a verbal shorthand when you see that. So you do green chili something like my friend Lane Warner and who's a chef at La Fonda in Santa Fe, he does a green chili teal that is out of this world, and he also uses a roux. Yeah, um, and, and it it really is a nice way to to work. I picked it up several years ago just being down here in Hatch Chili Country, um, seeing other people make it because yeah, I do a, a, a chili verde style stuff too with tomatillos and and everything else where there is no roux. So. Well, all right. Well, uh, I think we've covered quite a bit of squirrelness this uh, past almost hour and a half. So this season, you know, it is October. Your squirrel season is opening. And do you have any squirrel hunting plans for this coming season? Yeah, squirrel hunting actually open, open today here in Arizona. Um, so I'm hoping to get up uh, uh, very, very soon been kind of watching the reports. Of course, duck season also opened the same day today. So I'm getting like, conflicting you know uh, urges one to go after birds and one to go after squirrels but um we'll definitely get out there this year and i will see you in uh, december when we will chase uh, mr bushytail together all right sounds good man all right thanks for being on the show and uh i will see you out there i appreciate it thanks thanks again for listening to the hunt gather talk podcast i am your host hank shaw you can follow me on social media at instagram i am at hunt gather cook I'm on Twitter as Hank Shaw, and I am on Facebook. Look for the forum Hunt, Gather, Cook. It is a forum on Facebook, and you have to ask to get in. Answer the questions and tell me that you heard it on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. And you can always find me online at Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. That is HuntGatherCook.com. All the recipes and the home base of this Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast are there. Talk to you soon. Shoot straight and have fun out there, everyone. I'm Hank Shaw, and see you next time.